I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And this week... We're going to go back to a previously recorded episode, a conversation with Chelsea Sodaro, a wonderful woman and a pretty good athlete too. But why are we going back to Chelsea? She's a purple patch pro, that's interesting, but let me give you some context. This last weekend, we had a big weekend for us. It was Ironman Santa Rosa 70.3, the closest thing we really have to our home race. And we managed to secure wins and great performances with Sam Appleton winning the male pro race, longtime purple patch athlete Sarah Kometo winning the overall amateur female race, and today's guest, Chelsea, taking the win in the female pro race. She scorched a 1.16 half marathon split off the bike there. Bully for us, you might say. But there's real context and lessons in Chelsea's story. And so I decided to bring back the conversation. You see, to provide a little history, since about December of 2018, so about eight months ago, Chelsea's navigated a long-term injury stemming from both biomechanical and musculoskeletal weaknesses that really required long-term intervention and very patient treatment. She's had to take the long lens in rebuilding form and strength so that she can be equipped for long-term success. She's lived the frustration that many of you, the listeners, probably associate with. Little mini setbacks, sitting and watching while others perform, while she's absolutely unable, and having to keep context and belief alive as all seems helpless. Now, she's healthy, and we believe, built for success. A 1.16 run split in a half marathon, coming off of three weeks of running. A little tangent there, yes. There are lessons in the power of the multi-sport approach to train for the run. Three weeks of running, 116. She might have been a professional runner, but that's pretty good. So I thought it might be nice to dig in and understand how this former professional runner and emerging pro sees life, navigates the performance journey and integrates into purple patch life. She is very purple patch in her beliefs, and we're really proud to work with her. Now, you might listen to this episode and think, wow, what a great person. I'd love to have a live chat with her. I'd love to ask her all sorts of questions. I want to dig deeper. Well, guess what? You can. You see, if you're a member of a brand new Purple Patch Squad program, it's exactly what you can do. Because a part of the program, twice weekly, we have these live video sessions and we call them office hours. It's a wonderful chance for squaddies, as I like to call them, to ask questions, discuss performance, and get the down and dirty from myself, the Purple Patch coaches, and of course, special guests. And this week, our guest on today's podcast, Chelsea, is going to be joining live, and we're going to have an intimate discussion around performance, her navigation through injury, and the lessons she should learn. It's going to be fun, but most importantly, it's going to be educational. Now, of course, beyond the great community and the live sessions, the Purple Patch Squad program has training, specifically designed for time-staffed athletes looking to elevate performance across all distances of triathlon. The Purple Patch Squad empowers you, puts you in control of your schedule, and guides you on the performance journey all the way to your key events. So you can, if interested, folks, learn more. 
just head to the squad page of the website, purplepatchfitness.com. And of course, I don't mind if you feel free to share it with anyone that you know that might find it beneficial. But enough of the squad and the shameless promotions. Love you to go and check it out. But beyond that, let's get cracking. Let's open up the Chelsea Sedaris discussion. But before we do that, I think we need to get the blood moving. We need to get energised. We need to get vibrant. Let's have a little dance. Let's do word of the week. We like the way he thinks. Serious with a wink. Let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. And the word of the week this week, how can it be anything but the comeback? Yes, as we talk about in the show a little bit, Chelsea had a setback December 2018 and it was clear that her pesky knee that she arrived to Purple Patch with wasn't just going to be a short little niggle. She expressed various weaknesses and it was going to be set to cause ongoing issues if we did not address. It was a setback. But for me as a coach, this setback was frustrating, but very quickly I need to translate my emotions and Chelsea's emotions to opportunity. You see, the setback just paves the way for the stronger comeback. The injury mindset, the natural human condition. Oh, I can't do X, Y, Z. In Chelsea's case, the run, her love, her passion. I'm going to decline. All of my goals seem further in the distance. What about the races in the coming weeks and months? All evaporated. But the opportunity. How can I use this situation to completely evolve my performance in the long term. It doesn't reduce the frustration, but it is a required mindset to foster both healing and long-term opportunity and development. So in Chelsea's case, it was a massive focus in strength globally, targeting mobility and strength specifically around the key weak points that we knew would be issues in the future. There's also a great opportunity for her to shift into a driving focus to develop in other areas of her sport, namely the swim, her weakness, and the bike. Without the run distraction, opens up opportunities in other area. And interestingly, despite being a professional runner and a rich history in the sport, some minor refinements in running gait so that we can also hopefully find more speed but also reduce the risk of injury driving forward in the areas that she could while having patience and I mean a lot 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 of patience in development strength and refinement her running her love not a possibility a seemingly endless journey with no validation of it having a positive impact just belief and commitment to doing what is necessary but now eight months later Thank goodness I did that. Look at me now. Better equipped to manage load, we hope, reducing occurrence of future setbacks. She comes back more resilient and in many areas better. And that's what we look for, better. She's better now, but most importantly, she's built a platform for the future. And so, yes, you can have a setback and it's frustrating and it's okay to be frustrated. But that setback always, 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 always paves the way for the comeback. And that is why the word of the week this week is the comeback. Now, Chelsea, you are this week's Meat and Potatoes. 
I am joined by one Chelsea Sodaro, who is uh, relatively new on the Purple Patch roster of our professional squad. And we are currently, Chelsea, down in Scottsdale in Arizona, spending entirely too much time with each other at our pro training camp here in January. But... Um, but I asked Chelsea onto the show to have a chat a little bit about her background and story, but hopefully provide you folks listening with a little education around all aspects of the sport. Chelsea, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to go through, I'll embarrass you to start, all right? We're going all to right. go through a little bit of a bio just so that the listeners at home know a little bit more about you, because I would guess that a fair few of our listeners have probably never heard of Chelsea Sodaro, but... They will very soon, and they should have. So you were a runner at the University of California, where you earned All-American status. And then after your uh, running career and you finished up there, you went professional for four years. So you're a professional runner for four years, two-time U.S. national champion, once in the uh, Road 10K and in the Indoor 3K. And then you transitioned from running, as we're going to talk about today a little bit, to a triathlete and uh, now racing professionally, part of the Purple Patch squad. And by all accounts, as your coach, I would say that you are young in the sport. But in your short career so far, you've been a World Cup winner in the ITU, so that short course distance. And you've done two whole half Ironman or Ironman 70.3 distances, becoming the winner in the second attempt at that distance at the Indian Wells 70.3 leap last season. So we're going to talk a lot about triathlon and your progression and some of your habits and keys to your success. But before we do, why don't we just dive in? I, I always like to do this with guests because I think it really gives some some context and grounding. I want to know a little bit more about you. So what, just give me a couple of minutes on, on your background, your family, your education, where you grew up, etc. Sure. I am from Davis, California. Um, and... My, um, my parents actually met, they were in rec sports at San Diego State where they met and they were both amateur triathletes in the eighties. So I'd like to think that I have, um, triathlon in my blood, even though I found it a little bit later in life, sure. but, um, they were both very active people. My dad was always training for the Boston Marathon and my mom was a collegiate gymnast at UC Berkeley. And so uh, sports were always a big part of our life. And, um, I did ballet growing up. I swam in the summer. I played a lot of soccer fairly competitively. Um, and then I found running when I was, um, 12 or 13 years old and, and really fell in love with that sport and pursued it in high school and beyond. Um, my little brother was a very good swimmer and collegiate water polo player. Um, so, um, yeah, we were we were very active, and um, my dad was a teacher at my local high school, and my mom was a doctor, and and so we were. Um, I, I think my family was a pretty big part of the Davis community, and that was always sure. um, an important aspect of of our life as well. So, growing up, you you were really. It wasn't like you just went through this endurance athlete progression. You really sounded like you tried a lot of different sports, soccer and ballet, great for kinesthetic awareness and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never, I didn't specialize in a sport until I got to high school. I never, I was never really committed actually to any of the sports that I did growing up. I was always competitive and I think fairly athletic, but 
I didn't really fall in love with the process of training or practicing until I found running in high school. I remember my parents really like nagging me to practice my like dribbling and um, like juggling with a soccer ball in the backyard growing Mm -hmm. up. I Mm -hmm. didn't, but I didn't love it. And I played a lot of instruments and I didn't love practicing those. And um, it wasn't till it wasn't till I was a teenager that I found some discipline in sport, I think. And when you, you chose Cal, which you, you mentioned your mum went to. And, That's right. And uh, what, what, did that have an influence just, just through interest that the fact that she had been there or was it mostly around the, the running and the, the coaches there and the team there? What sort of drew you to Cal and staying a little bit local really in many ways? Yeah, initially I thought that I wanted to go to the East Coast um, while I loved my community that I grew up in. It was starting to feel, Davis was starting to feel a little bit small to me, um, but I was recruited to Cal and I visited the campus and um, went driving through the Berkeley Hills with the head coach there, Tony Sandoval. And um, he, Cal was, was not a prolific program at that time. And he really sold me on the idea of being part of starting something new and really um, being part of making Cal a nationally ranked program. And, and that was very intriguing to me. I think that, um, it would have been a totally ex- different experience to go to a school that was already established. Sure. But there was something about building building something new that the athletic entrepreneurialism or almost I suppose. Uh, yeah, no it's no it is it's uh, it's interesting to grow and and one thing I realized by the way is we have a lot of really geographically dispersed listeners. So I want to explain where Davis is a little bit. And uh so Cal is is a, across the the bay. Uh, University of California, as they refer to it as Cal, it's across the bay from San Francisco. It's really part of the Bay Area. And then Davis is probably about 80 or 90 miles north of, or east of the city, northeast of the city, heading towards Lake Tahoe, basically. So it's, uh, it's a lovely little town, actually, Davis, but, uh, but it's a pretty small town, huh? It is a small town. Um, You're a farm girl. I, a little bit. One time I was driving home, actually. Um, with a friend and they remarked on the smell of the cows and I couldn't smell it because I, I guess it was in your skin. It was in my skin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so give us, um, go back to your running career and, and I guess start with cow. Was it, was it the experience that you hoped for at cow? You were, you were building something and was the, uh, was the team environment of being a university athlete? Was that, was that a, a sort of great experience for you? It was a great experience for me, and I think that it really set me up for a professional career after school, Um, but it certainly wasn't what I expected. I was injured for the majority of my first four years at Cal, and things didn't really click for me personally as an athlete until my fifth year there, but I had the opportunity to really take on a leadership role with a younger team and... um, I think take a lot of initiative with um, with guiding the program and sure and yeah. um, and I think that there was a lot of leadership that was um, driven by the athletes, which you don't find any everywhere necessarily. No, for sure. And then afterwards, as as you did turn professional, you uh, I mean, you ran in the Diamond League, yeah. So, I did. Mm-hmm. So, so you you actually traveled internationally, really uh, racing professionally. G- give us 
as you look back now, and we're going to talk about triathlon, but when you look back at your your running career, and I don't mind if you encompass the cow journey, which obviously sounds like it was full of experiences, maybe some not all positive, but certainly organically leading you to something else. And then your professional running career. Are there things that um, you, you've really carried forward into professional triathlon? Are there also things that you look back and think, wow, I really would have done that differently if I would had a do-over sort of thing? Sure. I think that the most important thing that Cal gave me are the relationships that I that I still have to this day. Um, Magdalena Louis Boulet was my coach for my first two years at Cal. And then she was my professional coach after school. And she has just been a great friend and mentor for me as an athlete and human. Um, and then I also met my husband, Steve at Cal and I wouldn't be a professional athlete if it weren't for him. So um, Cal has really given me like the greatest gifts of my life, I sure. think. Sure. But I, you know, I think that if I knew how to swim like I do now, I would have been a much better athlete having been, um, <laughs> having been injured like I was. But, um, no, I'm really thankful for my experience as a runner. It, it wasn't, it didn't turn out how I wanted it to, and I didn't achieve everything that I wanted to, but I did get to travel the world and compete at a, at a really high level. And, um, yeah, I think that, I think that, those lessons and successes and failures that I had are invaluable. I want to go, I want to go back very quickly because I forgot to ask you your background in swimming. Cause I'm going to talk about your swimming uh, in, in a little bit, but you, you did not really, you did not grow up a swimmer by any stretch. No? I did a like summer swim team, but I was not competitive and I didn't enjoy it and I was not very good at it, but my brother was a swimmer. And so I think that, it made sense for us both to go to the same place sure. at the same time during sure. summer from like a childcare standpoint. Well, he, whatever his uh, swimming background is, it rubbed off on <laughs> a little bit because your, your swimming is pretty good. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, once you decided to stop running professionally, what, did you go straight into triathlon or what was there a gap there? What Tell me a little bit about the sort of the time or the transition between sort of finishing running and transitioning into, into triathlon. Sure. I was fairly injured in the lead up to the 2016 Olympic trials on the track. I was training for the 10K and I had a lot of um, lower leg Achilles sort of injuries leading into that race. And um, I kind of pulled it together from a health standpoint before the trials, but I did not perform on the day. Mm -hmm. And I felt well short of my expectations of of what I thought I was capable of doing. And um, my professional contract was up that year. And so initially I decided that I would train for the marathon because I thought that if I could pop a good marathon time, maybe I could get re-signed and like keep on pursuing this life that I was living. But like two weeks into marathon training, my Achilles were hurting again and I just, I felt a bit lost and um, I felt like I didn't quite have the passion that that I needed to keep on pursuing this. So, so what was the catalyst for triathlon? Well, I, um, I was injured and injured again 
And I had been following the build up to Rio for the triathlon. I really enjoyed watching the ITU races and I had convinced my husband that we needed to buy like the um, yearly pass to watch triathlon because I had become a fan of the sport. And um, we were watching, I think, a WTS race and he was like, you should try that. I think you'd be really good at it. And I laughed and I was like, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said. There's no way. Um, but he bought me a bike and I started riding with him and I joined a master's group and I got more and more obsessed with this idea that I, like, I think, um, most of us triathletes do. Mm -hmm. And I got in contact with a professional coach and, um, went to go try out for his squad and, um, moved a month later and was pretty full on in. Suddenly immersed in it. I was immersed. And, very quickly. And very quickly, you 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 basically transitioned into racing professionally. And wh- when was your first your first triathlon? My first triathlon was in March of 2017. It was um, an elite development draft legal race in Claremont, Florida. Okay. And I was um, you race on Saturday and Sunday, and I think I was second on Saturday and first on Sunday. So not a bad start. Then, it wasn't a bad start, though. <laughs> though um, during the swim in my first race, I totally panicked. I there were breaststrokes involved, which is kind of a no-no. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to like grab onto the rescue kayaks, but I um, persisted, and I think I swam like 13 minutes for 750 meters, and just started like hammering away on the bike and. Made your way back into made it. Made my way back into it on the run. And and over the the coming the first season there was sort of there were some ups and downs. Is that fair enough in, in review of your, your race performances? Yeah, absolutely. Um I started out at the Continental Cup level and had some podiums and then moved on to the World Cup circuit and totally bombed my first race. I think I was I think I may have been last. And I was two minutes behind on the swim from the leader. Um, And then I had some top 10 performances at the World Cup level where I showed some potential, but I I never felt like I really executed a great race at any point in that season. Mm -hmm. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. uh, It was uh, about six months ago now, somewhere somewhere in the summer that, that you reached out to me and we sat down and we had a a coffee uh, and it wasn't a necessarily a coaching call it wasn't an interview for me to coach you it wasn't uh you reaching out to be coached but uh we reached down and we reached out and had a a coffee and from my perspective when i sat down i i sort of saw an athlete that was without being rude a little lost and uh, really not sure on the path so i guess uh why did you reach out originally and, and sort of Tell the listeners a little bit of where you were at at that time. Yeah, when I reached out to you, I had just come off my first World Cup win. And it had been this race that I had been working for since I started triathlon. And the result that I had really been dreaming of and thinking of when I was, you know, hammering on the swim, bike and run and training. But when I crossed the finish line, I was in Mexico and I... My family wasn't there and my husband wasn't there. And it was this very lonely experience, which surprised me because I expected to just be so like stoked. Yeah. But I wasn't. I felt kind of empty when I crossed the finish line. 
And at, at that point, I was pretty unhappy in my training environment. I was living apart from my husband um, because I was training in San Diego and he was working in the Bay Area. And I had decided to leave my my training environment and move back home to be with him. And initially, I contacted you because I wanted to know a little bit more about the um, like opportunities to be a triathlete in the Bay Area and um, what kind of like swims and bikes and um, like sort of maybe practices that you could tell me about so that I could have start building some sort of like structure to my life sure. um, in the Bay Area. Um, b- but I also knew about your reputation. I, kn- I knew a little bit about your philosophy. And um, as a fan of the sport, I knew about Sarah and I was interested in potentially reaching out to her as a training partner. So it, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't necessarily totally for advice. I did have an ulterior motive. Well, we we went through a series of discussions, and uh, it, it sort of uh, almost uh, by accident it sort of fell into place, and and you became a purple patch athlete. So, middle of the season, and and I think the important thing here as well was a decision by you, not by me, by by you to turn your back on short course racing ITU. So for you guys listening that are not necessarily triathletes, the distance of triathlon and the setup of triathlon in which it's uh, competed at the Olympic Games and decide to make a transition towards long course, which for you guys again listening at home, that's more Ironman and Ironman 70.3 or half the Ironman distance. Uh, and you sort of, you you had already made that decision that you decided to go. What, what was your feeling on that? What was the um, What was the catalyst of that change? I had been pursuing the, this Olympic dream since I was 23 years old um, when I graduated from Cal. And I started to feel a little bit disillusioned with that. And I also started to feel really excited about long course and going long. And I think that long distance triathlon is kind of the ultimate test of your body and mind. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was starting to excite me. And so we start the journey and uh, we start the journey about six months ago in the summer. So you came mid season and uh, for, for you guys listening, it's, I would say in some ways a less preferable time to really start a coaching relationship in another way maybe the best time. We had no pressure. In fact, I remember one of our first conversations, are we even going to race? And we decided, well, let's see. Uh, but why don't you talk about the initial months? And and I think the first thing that you did is we did a couple of weeks of training and I said, you're off to Kona. You're going to go and help Sarah Piampiano, who was uh, who was preparing for the Hawaii Ironman at that stage. But I'd, um, I'd love your thoughts and insights over the sort of initial couple of months because I think it was – a sort of real, um, it was almost a wash of change and, and evolution in the in the way that you sort of view the sport in some ways, yeah? Absolutely. I think that my first couple of months with you and Sarah and Paul and Purple Patch really just freed me up to enjoy a new process and to learn a new process and um, to integrate myself into the team and um, to kind of embrace a new coaching philosophy. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there was very little pressure on me. And I think that also 
being Sarah's training partner and being part of her build up to Kona um, really just freed me up to um, enjoy the process of helping someone else. I think as professional athletes, we can get pretty consumed with our own goals. And I don't think that it has to be that way. I think that I have been given this incredible gift um, in having a training partner that is very good and very talented. And I just get to follow her around a bit and learn from her. (laughs) And that takes a lot of pressure off of me. And, um, And while you would think that it might be hard to be focusing on someone else's goals or be helping them, it actually allows you to let go of your own like stress. Yeah. And actually, and, and I think it opened the door for learning. Yeah. Cause you were there under the guidance in that camp uh, in Hawaii last year, you're under the guidance of Paul Buick, uh, my assistant. Yeah. Which is quite an experience in itself, but uh, I think you had that total immersion, but I, I, something you said there, I think is really important because I wanted to spell a myth uh, that, that I hear a lot that, Female, professional, or high-achieving, highly motivated athletes typically, this is the myth, typically don't cooperate and uh, and are often combative. And my experience is that uh, when you set up the right environment, it can be incredibly powerful. And uh, and I, I think with yourself and Sarah, that's a um, – why don't you talk about your guys' relationship? You've got a high-performing, very seasoned professional athlete who's right in her prime getting ready for one of the bigger races in her life. Suddenly, we include you into the equation, and you add it together, I think that all of us can agree it's just been a real positive, both for her and for you. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. When I first asked you to coach me, I think that you connected me with Sarah so that I could ask her questions about you and the program and learn a little bit more about Purple Patch from the athlete perspective. And Sarah and I had a really nice chat. But towards the end of the chat, I said, so Sarah, if I do join Purple Patch, do you think that we'd be able to overlap a little bit? And how much do you think that we could train together? And she said, Chelsea, we can train together as much as you want. And um, that was a real selling point for me. I, you have to train a lot when you're a professional triathlete and I really prefer to train with other people. I think it makes the process a lot more fun and, um, it's easier to suffer together. And, um, she has really stuck to her word and embraced that. And I think embraced me. And I also think it would have been really easy for her to just, um, stick to her own routine and, um, kind of invite me in when it was convenient, but, um, we've really developed a positive partnership, I think, where we have different strengths and strengths and weaknesses and, um, support each other through it all, really. And there's one thing that I see that from both of you guys that you're, you're having, you mentioned this word, you seem to be having more fun. And I think that, um, that can breed confidence in many ways. I think so. We really enjoy, well, I can only speak for myself, but I really enjoy Sarah's company um, on a human level. And um, and that certainly makes it 
more fun, but I also have immense respect for her as an athlete, and it's a privilege to watch her and learn from her every day. So, so talk about your first couple of races because your your first race maybe didn't go quite as planned for you. Your first half Ironman, you finished. I finished, and, uh, yeah. and you actually got a paycheck, but uh, but it was a frustrating experience for you. And then coming back and and obviously winning Indian Wells. As you now sort of move forward into this season, your first real season of long course as we start the adventure as it is sitting here in January, go back and just uh, review your first couple of races of last year. Yeah, my first my first race at Waco was definitely a challenge. I think I made a lot of rookie mistakes like many people do in their first four plus hour race, but I rode the bike like it was an ITU race and I matched every move like my life depended on it and expended a lot of energy doing that I think um and then I also didn't read the drafting rules as closely as I probably should have and I got a drafting penalty which was really disappointing um and then my stomach started to really shut down like 90 minutes into the bike ride and I Definitely didn't have my fueling, my fueling down. Walked the aid stations for half of the half marathon and kind of found my legs during the second half. But I was more disappointed with my lack of flexibility and my mindset when things got hard. And um, and yeah, I was just frustrated with my overall approach to the race. Um, but I knew that I wanted to do it again, and I knew that I wanted to do it better. And then it came back, and uh, did it feel like validation of the at least initial start of the process when you had a great uh, Indian Wells? I think it felt like validation for the decisions that I had made leading up to that race. Um, I think that in years prior to joining Purple Patch, I had made a lot of decisions based only on my athletic performance. But when I started to prioritize other things in life that are important to me and prioritizing the people that I'm surrounding myself with, um, that has kind of changed my perspective. And um, Indian Wells felt like validation for those decisions. It's, uh, I think that's a, a really important component. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about uh, the broader Purple Patch community Uh and I, I only talk about this or ask this because I'm I'm pretty sure this is important. And for you guys listening, I think many know it's a somewhat unique. It's a, we, we don't just operate as a professional squad of ten athletes where it's a high performance. It is chicken soup. And uh, and how was that coming in? You you were sort of originally in a squad that was only elite athletes, and before that, you were running as a professional runner. And suddenly you've got the whole range of the spectrum under one sort of swimming pool roof and, uh, and bike class on trainers, et cetera. How's, how's that been for you being sort of thrown into that environment? It's been an absolute pleasure. I, the environment that you've created Matt and that purple patch has provided for me has brought a lot of the joy back into my athletic pursuit. Um, we have an incredible amateur community, um, and I'm so impressed by the high-level people that show up at 
5.30 to swim every single week without fail and show up to bike class every single week without fail who have these incredibly full and busy lives with um, more stress that I can probably wrap my head around. <laughs> but we're all there and we're all working really hard together. And while we may not be in the same lane or necessarily doing the exact same session all of the time, um, it's a pretty bonding experience to be sharing that. I think the common thread is uh, self-improvement. And ultimately, that's that's your quest as well. It's not just outcomes. It's how good can I be? And uh, and I think they they have the same the same drive as well. Ultimately, which I think is really one of the unifying threads of uh, of what we've created in many ways. Absolutely, I don't think that it necessarily matters what your passion or pursuit is, but it's the attitude that you bring to that passion and the drive and the discipline and dedication. And I think that. All of the athletes that I'm surrounded with, whether they're competing for a world championship or just trying to be healthy. I want to ask one, um, one more question of you before we sort of go into maybe a little bit more education for the listeners and uh, and sort of thought share from you. But th- this year you've joined uh, a team, the European-based team, the BMC VFIT team. Uh, outside of you arriving to pro camp, absolutely the best dressed. Huh? Uh, how, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> how uh, it seems like that's just been a, a wonderful fit, and uh, and a, and a, a great squad and a great team of great support. Of it's, um, it, you must be so happy to be a, a part of the team. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be a part of the BMCV Fit team. Again, I'm, I've really been embraced by another community that's, um, made up of like very seasoned, accomplished professional triathletes. And I just came from camp in Lanzarote in the Canary Islands. And, um, you just learn so much by watching other people who are, um, so accomplished. And, and I think that's, you know, one of the the biggest benefits to me is to be able to learn from other people who who know more than I do. And, and obviously, I I was not there, but I, I I followed some of your pictures, and the one thing that I saw coming out of it was was uh, a real unity and and joy. You guys were having a lot of fun as well, and uh, you know I think that can be a part of it. Many people sort of think about excellence as being this uh, this vigor where your eyebrows have to touch with venom. But uh, but it really seemed like quite a, a supportive environment globally and a, and a joyous one in many ways. Absolutely. My natural inclination is to be very serious and intense. Um, and really? I, and really? I, find, I know. <laughs> I, I find that I am more successful when I surround myself with people who aren't quite like that. <laughs> I think that... Um, I do better when the energy is a little bit lighter and we're having fun and enjoying the process because it's pretty easy for me to switch on the um, game face, but you can't have your game face on all of the time. In fact, it's very counterproductive to be um, gripping and ripping, as they say, um, 24-7. And so it's a process. It's, it continues to be a process for me to learn how to turn it off Um and, you know, I was hanging out with um, Chris Lieferman and Will Clark, who are 
incredible athletes and they have a really good time. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. And Paul and I are trying to bully you into having a good time every day. I, promise I know, you. I know. <laughs> so, so let's talk about training and uh, transition. You can draw sort of some of the initial experience of Purple Patch when you answer this question as well, or just thinking about long course. But what are some of the key ingredients that you found in training when you start to weave together your lens, I guess, on successful training? What does that look like? If you have to give some people your thoughts on what it means to be successful in training, what would they be? What would you be your ABCs? Well, I think the real secret to successful training is consistency. It's not about having one incredible day or session every few weeks. It's about stringing together good days of training day after day after day. And one thing that I really appreciate about Purple Patch and your style of coaching, Matt, is that on our on days, we are on and we're going really hard and trying to maximize um maximize what we're getting out of that day but on the off days so to speak we're recovering and we're focusing on absorbing the training from the harder day before and preparing our bodies for the challenging days ahead so so i i really appreciate that dichotomy of um being on versus recovering and i think that a lot of people spend a lot of time in between those areas. And I am guilty of that as well, mm-hmm. of kind of just um, making it a grind almost, making it a grind day after day after day. And that's not how we adapt. That's not periodization. That's not how we get better. That's how we tire ourselves out. What, what about uh, at, Paul, at the pro level? Paul is a big part of our, our setup. And, uh, you know, I, I'm the person that sits on the website and sits on this podcast <laughs> and does all the talking. Paul does not like to be in the, the limelight, but, uh, but is a worker, is a, is a unique creature. How's, what's Paul's influence been so far? Um, I had the privilege of spending 10 days with Paul in Kona at, um, Sarah's, uh, Kona, pre Kona camp. And, um, at one of our first swims, Paul came up to me and he looked me straight in the eyes and he said, don't train like the athlete that you are, Chelsea. Train like the athlete that you want to be. And I've really held on to that. Mm-hmm. I think that, and I, and I carry that especially in the pool because I'm working on my confidence in the water. But when I um, really ruminate on that, I know that I hold myself differently and I swim differently and I attack the swim differently. And I think that that message can be so powerful for anyone at any level. We're so stuck on who we are in this moment or who we think that we are, but we're capable of changing that. We're capable of becoming who we want to be. And I think that that message from Paul is going to serve me very well in triathlon, but also in my life and really give me agency to to be who I want to be as an athlete and a person. Let's come back to habits. We, we focus so much naturally on intervals and swim, bike and run because you're a triathlete. But for you, 
and, and I say this, I know, as a little bit of a leading question because of our, our focus across these, but what are the key elements for you, either in your running and, and of course, in your triathlon career that have been so critical to your success? What have been some of the supporting habits that that you place a focus on that are sort of your non-negotiables? My non-negotiables are sleep. I'm pretty anal about how much sleep that I get. I really like to have nine hours of sleep every night and I can handle eight and I really like 10 hours of sleep. (laughs) Um, But I'm not that nice of a person or that good of an athlete if I get much less than that. So sleep is very important to me. Um, Nutrition is incredibly important. Really fueling right after sessions, um, fueling well during sessions and staying hydrated throughout the day. Um, I'm also putting a, a greater focus on mindfulness and having a meditation practice. And I, um, I do that first thing in the morning when I get up, I spend 10 minutes and I use the app Headspace, which is a little ironic to use an app on your phone to meditate, but it seems to be working out okay for me right it's now. It's effective. It's effective, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. And if you go back and you self reflect or when you look at, Many other athletes, amateur or otherwise, what, what would you suggest some of the most common pitfalls that you see? I think that there's so, there are so many things out there right now and there's so much data out there right now. And I'm not real big into like analyzing my data. In fact, like I really enjoy having coaches do that for me. But I think that if we can just focus on getting the most out of ourselves in the session that we're in that will really benefit us the most. I think, um, I think that, um, getting too caught up in the weeds of all of this stuff is a distraction from just getting a little bit better. You know, I went down and did a, uh, a discussion for a, a corporate group, and uh, a set of leaders in a uh, in, in a large company uh, just last week, and I talked about a concept of intentional focus. And for athletes, world class athletes, amateur athletes, as well as in business, there are way too many inputs. There's just so much noise, and so a part of coaching or a part of being a great athlete is to be able to have focus on the things that are going to actually really move your performance needle. And sometimes it's individual, but I think that's really important. And it becomes really confusing for anyone when you try and spread your focus across too much. And um, that really resonated. So it certainly resonates with um, with what you say there. Um, how about coaching? And I, I hope I asked this question, by the way, I, I don't want this to be a a a gushing about myself or or anything else but I think a part of being a great athlete and let me me preface it this way the best athletes that I have ever coached have always been in some way highly coachable so humble enough to understand that they need great leaders need their great leaders great athletes need great coaching but in your world as the other side of the fence as as an athlete what does what's the value of coaching for you what do, what do you look for out of a coach me or otherwise well first of all <clears throat> um i look for a coach who's smarter than me or who i think that is smarter than me in terms of training because i really like to swim bike and run 
I don't really want to have to think about the like particulars of the sessions. I really enjoy when someone else does that for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I'm free to execute that. Um, but what I also appreciate about um, you, Matt, and what was really important to me um, when we first started working together was that you really empower me to take ownership of my own journey. And you made it very clear from the beginning that um, this is a journey that we're taking together and this is a partnership. And um, I feel like I'm at a point in my career where I don't necessarily need a dictator telling me what to do 24-7. I need someone who's going to mentor me um, and work with me to help me get the most out of myself and to reach my potential. And um, I think that I also appreciate having a mentor in a coaching relationship where it's about being the best athlete that I can be, but also being a good person. Um, I think that when you're your best self and you're happy, that's when, at least for me, that's when I'm going to perform at my highest level. A hundred percent. And I would say as well that I, I believe a part of coaching is I'm glad that you uh, and, and humbled that you, you talked about empowerment because that's, that's a real driver for me. And I do think that a coach's role isn't just uh, for anyone athletic performance. I think it is a, a part of ultimately trying to help guide, advise to help the person refine their best selves across all areas of their life. And that's, that's when the coaching relationship really sort of takes flight in many ways. And if we can do that, it's more enjoyable. It means more to the athlete. The athlete ultimately has the ownership, not just on their journey, but the ownership of their results and, um, and a partnership. But the more I can make myself irrelevant as we go along, the better it's going to be for everyone. And <laughs> I think I'm we're a ways away from that. <laughs> and, I tell you, and Jesse will Thomas tell you I'm pretty irrelevant to him now. He's joined. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, it, it totally, it, it resonates. So, so if someone's looking for a coach, what would you, uh, and, and the answer is not just go and sign up for Purple Patch. What, what, what would be the tips for, for them for searching the right coach for them? Because it's, I think we both agree that not every coach is the right person for every athlete. Yeah. So, so how would you sort of recommend going about the search for a coach? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the most important parts of a coaching relationship or a positive coach athlete relationship is communication. When you talk to or interview your potential coach, can you, do you think that you could have an honest conversation with them? Is this someone that you can really talk to when things aren't going well? Um, and then I think you also need to, you know, get a real flavor for their coaching philosophy. And if the training that they're describing sounds like something that you could buy into. Yeah. Um, so those would be That's my biggest big tips. Thing. Yeah. So you're in camp here. We've talked about Sarah, obviously, but uh, we're in a camp environment. We've got eight days down here. I'd, I'd love to hear now that we're coming to the end, we've just got one day left and you have met some people that you had never met before. You've been sort of thrown into this this very strange sort of elite camp environment. What have been some of the highlights or values of that from a camp for you personally as an athlete? Oh, gosh. Um, 
Maybe one of my highlights is climbing up from Bartlett Lake with Duncan, who's a geologist in Scotland. <laughs> He's amazing. Um, you know what? I, I love being in this kind of environment. And we have a team um, of athletes with all sorts of different backgrounds and strengths, but I love just observing everyone's habit and process and taking away what I can to make myself a little bit better. And um, I love the team aspect. I love um, sharing the process, even though it's only for eight or nine days. Um, I love being in this immersive, this immersed environment um, where we're all, we're all together, making each other better and challenging each other. Um, so it's been, it's been really fun all around. I've been in, impressed with you guys with the, you come back and we talked about the sort of support before dual support, actually dual benefit from the sort of partnership with Sarah. But I think, uh, across the team this year, more than any other year, I've been impressed with how you guys have collaborated and kept really a, 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 an ever positive mindset throughout ever-increasing fatigue in many ways. And uh, and I think that, that really sort of pays dividends as you as you have a list of things to go home and, and work on. Let, let me ask you, let's come all the way up. The last question here before my little quick hit, what we call Desert Island that we're going to go through, the very reactive part to finish. When, when you finish your triathlon career, what is success going to look like? What does it mean to you? What does that word success mean? I think that it would be easy for me to give you um, some audacious result or goal that I hope to achieve. But I've spent a lot of years um, pursuing sport in that way. And at this point, I'm just trying to get the most out of myself and see what I'm capable of and see what is possible for my body and my mind. And I also hope that I leave a positive imprint on this sport because I think that the sport is incredible and the community is incredible. And I also think that um, the sport allows us to be brave and take risks and get confidence when, um, when we're struggling or challenged. And um, it's such an incredible opportunity to push ourselves and find out what we're capable of. And so I hope that my story can maybe be an example of that in some small way. So you're going to get some live coaching. That last two minutes that you said, never, ever forget it. Never forget and it and live by it. Because uh, the prior mindset of chasing something, like a result, will never empower your best performance in the way of what you just spoke about there. And so you should carry that for the rest of your athletic career. And if you keep that mindset, your results will probably be the best that they possibly can be. But you're also going to have an influence that you probably can't even imagine right now. And so carry that. Never forget it. Thanks, Matt. Now, Desert Island. Desert Island. Here comes the toughest part. Quick hit. This is where we find out more about you. This <laughs> is, yeah, this is the part. This is the dirty part. So we finish every discussion with quick questions, desert islands. And 
If you're British, you'll certainly remember Desert Island Discs, a, uh, a wonderful radio show where people had to choose their music that they would take to a desert islands. We do it a little bit different. And you have four quick questions. You've got to be reactive. You're not allowed to say things like the Bible or the fast track triathlete <laughs> or the national anthem or any of that. You've got to be, uh, got to be reactive. And I want to hear a little bit of the why behind it. Okay. So I want to bring Barry Manilow because <laughs> of his hair or whatever it might be. Okay. All right. So you can bring one piece of music with you. What would it be and why? I would bring home by Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros because that's what I walk down the aisle to. Oh, that's a good one. There know, you right? go. Question, answer so far of the whole. That sap, is the 100%. One. 100% sap. How about, how about your book? You only have one book to bring. I'm going to dork out on this one. Go on. I would bring Paradise Lost by John Milton. Oh, and again, are you an English major? I'm an English major. Epic poetry. Fantastic. Yep. And you can bring one other thing. What would it be? Oh, my dog. I'll tell Steve, your husband, that. <laughs> What's your dog's name? More His name is Tyson. He's a boxer. He's the love of my life. Tyson is a boxer. Good stuff. And as you leave, we push you to the shore, to, on, to, on the boat. You leave the shores. You can offer the world one piece of advice before you head to exile. What's it going to be? Be kind. Be yourself. Golden. Chelsea, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Next up for Chelsea, Nice, the 70.3 World Championships. What do we expect? Absolutely nothing. We go there looking for her best performance within context of her journey. It's only going to be her second race of the season, so we, I don't think we've earned the right to expect too much. But what we can do is commit to doing all we can do to maximise the performance and enjoy it. A very first triathlon world championships with no expectations outside of embracing the occasion and loving the race. So we're going to go there and try our best. What more can we do? Oh, and don't forget, we also have the education membership for you to enjoy. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. It enables you to get inside all of the Purple Patch content and you even get access to those live sessions that we talked about earlier, including the Chelsea live session. A snip at $25 a month, all for the Purple Patch education. Head to the website, purplepatchfitness.com. Now, we have a lot coming up in the next few weeks. Melindy Elmore, Canadian Olympic runner, former Purple Patch professional triathlete, and now a mum of two hunting an Olympic spot for her country in a marathon. It is truly a fascinating and informative chat. This isn't just a discussion with your run-in-the-mill professional athlete. We also have Stacey Sims coming up. Many of you guys have heard of Stacey Sims, a wonderful physiologist and keen expert in the female athlete. We're going to have a chat on performance, of course, the female athlete, and a lot more. And currently, our Purple Patch athletes, yes, those squaddies and education members, are busy contributing to the questions that they have for Stacey and the areas that they would like me to focus on with the discussion. Yep, squaddies and EDU members are guiding the conversation. Why don't you get involved? And finally, more from me. Lots of discussions coming up, including post-mortems of great and underwhelming performances, a live event from the 70.3 World Championships in Nice, and a little bit of an insight into my model 
of ongoing coaching and development of both athletes and employees. And of course, much, much more. Thanks so much for listening as ever. If you enjoy it, humbly ask. A little bit of a positive review on Apple Podcasts always goes a long way. But in the meantime, have a wonderful week and I'll catch you next time. Cheers.